Well, it's great to see all of you here today, and, and aren't you enjoying a little bit warmer weather today? I know it's a little rainy, it's, it's interesting. Um, as uh, yesterday, I thought the whole world was out and about yesterday. Um, you know, when you, when, it's funny, when we're coming from, transitioning from summer into winter, and it drops down into the 50s and in the 40s, everybody's freezing. But as we transition out of a week we had like last week, and it gets up into the 40s. People are like, where's my sandals? Honey, have you seen my sandals? I'm wearing shorts today. <laughs> hey, last week I introduced you to our Go West campaign that is starting. And Go West has to do with um, seeing a reality become of our vision of starting a second campus out on the west side of Bella Vista. And I shared with you to watch your mailboxes because you're going to be getting some very important information from the church. How many of you got that? None of you, I know, because everything was shut down. And so every, everything went wrong last week. All of our materials were being printed in Texas, if that tells you anything. So we got an email, it's like, uh, we're not gonna be able to deliver. Uh, we have no power and our factory is flooded. And so anyway, um, and we couldn't have gotten it to you anyway because the mail wasn't running right. So let's start over. Watch your mailboxes this week, okay? Because you're gonna be getting some very important mail from the church, and it's gonna introduce you to our Go West campaign, like I said, and I couldn't be more excited about what the next couple of months are gonna look like for our church family and what it's going to do as we see God move in tremendous ways among our church family. We see it all the time, but I believe God's gonna show something so special as we step on on faith as a church family and broaden our wings even further evangelistically. I can't wait to tell you a whole lot more about it, but for starters, watch your mailbox this week. Look for the envelope that says Go West on it. That's for you. I'd love for you to read it in its entirety, front and back, and we're going to talk more about it as we go along. Can we pray? And I just want to pray that God continues to bless this campaign that we're getting ready to start. God, we just thank you for being the God that you are, how you love us, provide for us, and protect us. And, and Lord, we feel like we're going into a season as a church that you're going to stretch us, you're going to grow us, Lord. It's going to be this, this season where we go, man, look what God did. Lord, we're excited about what is to come. Lord, I just pray that you continue to bless everything we're doing. And Lord, I pray you go with this mail that's gonna go out this week about our Go West campaign, Lord. And we just look forward to doing, seeing what you're gonna do. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, when I was in high school, I had a part-time job at a fast food restaurant called Taco Bueno. You remember that, those places? You ever heard of Taco Bueno? We used to have one here up until just recently. I realized it, it closed out. I don't know why. But I think maybe it was during that time in high school when I worked at Taco Bueno. That is where I fell in love with the fine culinary delicacy known as the bean burrito. And I think, I think that's where I fell in love with bean burritos. I had some really good burritos. I worked with a guy at Taco Bueno. His name was Kevin. Kevin was a little bit older than me, but not by much. And older, it means he was already out of high school. So he was college age. And Kevin had a wild streak about himself. Kevin, as I recall, he loved to talk about drinking, partying, girls, and anything that would make his Mustang go faster. All right. Anybody know a Kevin in your life? Anybody used to be a Kevin? No, I'm just I'm not going to ask you. I'm, I'm joking. One night, Kevin and I were working the same shift. It was a very slow night. There weren't really any customers. And so it was just kind of a lot of hanging out until closing time. And our conversation that night turned to God, you know, which was a welcome relief from the stuff that Kevin used to like to talk about. But we started talking about God. He knew as a Christian, he knew that I had requested to not work on Sundays or Wednesdays to protect going to church and being a part of youth group. That was so important to me back when I was in high school. And uh, so he started asking questions about that stuff. 
And our conversation turned very spiritual. And then part of that conversation, we were talking about heaven. He wanted to know what I thought about heaven and the afterlife and who gets to go to heaven. And then Kevin said something that kind of surprised me. Very confidently, he looked at me and says, Joe, I know that I'm going to heaven. And it shocked me, but I didn't want to look shocked because Kevin did not strike me as a guy that was in love with Jesus, okay? So I just said, well, what makes you so certain? And this was his answer. He said, well, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. I'm, I'm kind to everybody. And as I have the opportunity, I try to help people. Good people go to heaven, and so I know I'm going to heaven. Let's be honest, that's not shocking, is it? His answer is not shocking at all. I would suspect that, that pretty much all of us have had a conversation in our life that went something like that, right? You're talking to somebody about heaven, and their, their, their terms for eternity look like this. I'm a good person. Because in this world, whether you really believe it or not, we equate being good with going to heaven. In fact, if you were to go down to the square right after church, you just start random conversations with whoever you would meet out there. You're, and if you ask them, hey, why are you going to heaven? Can you be so sure? Or what gives you interest into heaven? You're gonna hear those kind of answers. People who are good go to heaven. People who are bad do not go to heaven. But let me ask you this. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what the Bible teaches? That you have to be a good and kind person in order to go to heaven? You know, we're in a series right now called Grounded, and what we are doing, we are looking at the core essential doctrines of the Bible. Doctrine just means teaching. So the core essential teachings of the Bible that we as a church family must have unity on because there's really no, there's not a lot of room for discussion. It's not one of the disputable matters that we talked about at the beginning of the year out of Romans 14, but what are the core essential doctrines of the Bible? That's what this series is about. So far, we have looked at the doctrine of God. We've studied the doctrine of sin. We've learned that sin is, is the thing that separates us from God. It's an infection that we all have. And we've studied last week the doctrine of Jesus. Of course, we know Jesus is the cure for sin. Now today, we're going to talk about what the Bible teaches us about salvation. Salvation. What makes a person saved according to the Bible? Are there specific conditions that somebody has to meet? in order to go to heaven. Now, I want you to know, this is no little conversation. Will you nod your head with me like this? Yeah, I know, this is no little conversation. These two questions alone, what makes a person saved and are there any specific conditions that must be met? Those two questions alone can fill up enough books that would fill up an entire library um, in just about any city of just authors and theologians and writers and pastors trying to write down and articulate the answers to those two questions from a biblical point of view. I know right in my own personal library in my office, I've got plenty of books written by theologians and pastors who, uh, who don't you know, all interpret the Bible the same way, but try to answer those questions. Now, let me clarify what I mean, don't interpret the Bible the same way. When we're talking about salvation among the church, there is a general agreement among the church about the large print topic of this. This is salvation, and most of the church say yes, and most of these authors agree. But then it's when you get into the fine print. That's where you find some, some great discussion over the intricacies of this conversation about the details of salvation. 
I would take a church like New Life. We are made up of folks who have come from multiple different uh, denominations and church traditions, have been taught different aspects of salvation. We got folks in our church that New Life is the only church they've ever known because they became a Christian here at this church, and this is the church to know. I would imagine in a church like ours that we would have widespread agreement as a church family on what I call the, the large print understanding of salvation. This is what the Bible teaches as a whole about salvation. But in a church like ours, I would imagine that we would have some very hearty discussions perhaps on the fine print. I'll give you a couple examples. Large print is this. This is what it means to be saved. And we're like, yep, this is, this is our understanding. Here's the fine print though. At what exact moment is somebody saved? There you're gonna probably have some very hearty discussions among our church family. But in the large print, what does it mean to be saved? Oh yeah, we're, there's agreement there. Here's another large print example. We are saved by the grace of God. And I think everybody in this room would go, yep, I agree, I understand, uh-huh, I agree. There's agreement there. But maybe the fine print is, what is the exact nature of the grace system? Well, then we probably have some really good discussions about that. Large print, in order to be saved, you must believe in Jesus. So, yep, I agree, 100%. Fine print. Well, is this a secret inward calling we're talking about to believe, or is this more based on free will? Well, I'm sure we'd have some pretty hearty discussions about that. Here's another large print. You are forgiven, you're forgiven of your sins by the blood of Jesus. Amen, we'd all agree. Fine print. How does justification, regeneration, and sanctification all work together? We have some real good discussions about that. I want to share with you these, I share with you these things only to point out that the conversation in the Bible, as we talk about um, salvation, it can go deep and detailed really fast, and that's not my goal for us today. I do enjoy a good, hearty, theological discussion from time to time, especially when there's a bean burrito and a Diet Coke in front of me. I do enjoy that. But my aim today is to help us as a church family understand the core teaching of the Bible as it relates to salvation. And I hope that I can do that in such a way that you'll be able to remember it, that you'll be able to articulate it to your friends, the Kevins of your life who ask you questions about salvation and what it means to be a Christian and who gets to go to heaven. I hope that you'll be able to recall these things, be memorable, and you'll be able to communicate them very easily. So I wanna start by talking about what the Bible teaches us something about God and his view of salvation. As you study the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, you get this understanding that God's love is unconditional and God's love is universal. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean this. God loves everybody even if they don't love them back. God's love's unconditional. The Bible speaks of God in such ways. Now, now to help kind of make this practical, I want you to think in your life right now, who is the, the biggest sinner, most awful person you can think of? We all got somebody like that we know. Who's that person for you? Is it gonna shock you to know that God loves that person just as much as he loves you. I know that's hard to stomach because some of these people we're thinking of, they have hurt us, they have scarred us, they've made our lives miserable. God loves that person just as much as he loves you. Why is that? It's because God's love is unconditional. God's love is universal. God loves everybody, even if they hate him. It's just God. 
But as you unpack this even farther, we learn this from the scriptures, that God freely gave his son Jesus, which God in the flesh, God gave his son Jesus to die on the cross for the sins of all people. He didn't die just for a few. He didn't die just for us. He made grace available and salvation available to everybody. First John chapter two, verse two says this. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So God sent his son Jesus to die for everybody. We also know this, that God desires for all people to be saved. That's at the heart of his desire. 1 Timothy 2.3 says this, this is good and this pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness, but instead he is what? He is patient with you. Why is he patient? Because he doesn't want anybody to perish, but everybody to come to repentance. This is what God desires. And this desire comes from his deep, unconditional, universal love for each of us. But you know what else we also know? We know this, that not everyone is going to be saved. That's very clear in scripture. Even though God desires everyone to be saved, not everyone will be saved. There are those out there that preach and teach this concept of universal salvation, that no matter what, everybody eventually goes to heaven and there is no hell. But my friends, I want you to know that is so inconsistent with what the scripture teaches. It actually is a false doctrine and anytime you hear it, you should absolutely reject it because it's not true. No, 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 salvation is available to everybody, but not everybody is going, to, is going to accept it. Not everybody's gonna be saved. And that is because God gives each and every person, you, me, everybody, what is known as free will. Every single sinner, which is everybody, has the ability and the opportunity to believe on their own accord and repent of their own free will. What the scriptures do for us is they clearly articulate, they communicate to us that God offers this free gift of salvation to all people. And it also tells us, varying from God's graciousness, what we have to do to receive this gift. The gift is always offered, but the gift is not always received. Have you ever tried to give a gift or a present to somebody and they absolutely just rejected it? Like, I don't want it. Have you ever said, no, I really want you to have this. And like, ah, I don't want that. You can just keep it. I don't want it. It's kind of like that. If you've ever had that experience, it's God saying, I've got this wonderful gift. It's all for you. And no, I reject that gift. So the gift of salvation, it's always offered to everyone, but it is not always received. And I think this concept is beautifully captured, I would even say sadly captured, in the Old Testament um, chapter of the Bible, Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 may not be as familiar to you as, say, John 3, 16, but Isaiah 65 is an expression of God through the prophet Isaiah uh, over the nation of Israel and the rejection of God. Listen to what God says here in Isaiah 65, 1. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here I am. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imagination. 
I try to be careful to not read too much emotion in the scriptures, but how can you not read emotion in the voice of God here when he is expressing how he feels about the people of, 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 of Israel? How he was so eager to welcome them, hands out saying, I'm here, come on, and they absolutely rejected him. Jack Cottrell writes about this concept of God and how God, it just reaches out to sinners when he writes this, and I agree with it 100%. He says, God is so eager to welcome sinners back that he, in effect, jumps into their path, waves his arms, yells, here I am. But people ignore him. So Isaiah 65 is about the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, how they just ignored God, even though his offer to be with them stood that whole time. But they turned their backs on him, and he did evil. Here was the consequences. If you keep reading Isaiah 65, you get down to verse 12, and God says this, I will destine you for the sword. In other words, it ain't always going to be like this. Something's going to change for you. My offer is there, but you reject it, and there's consequences to that. I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will fall. In the slaughter. For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Friends, God is the same yesterday as he is today, and he will be that way forever. God's feelings haven't changed. The nation of Israel had free will under the old covenant, and we today also have free will under the new covenant, which means that God's salvation, this gift, is available and offered to everyone, but not everyone will receive it. And God is not going to take away your free will to create an army of robots who love him, not on their own. No, God's given us free will. A number of years ago, Jim Carrey starred in a movie that maybe you've seen, Bruce Almighty. Did anybody see this movie? I mean, it's a clever movie about a guy named Bruce, played by Jim Carrey, who meets God, played by Morgan Freeman. And God gives Bruce all of his powers for a short while. He can do everything in an instant. He can do everything that God can do, except God told him this, you can't mess with people's free will. You gotta let them choose on their own but you can do anything else. Well, as you can imagine, Bruce has a heyday with these new powers. I mean, he can do anything he wants. He can be the guy he always dreamed to be. But as you watch the movie, you realize his love life's not so good. The, the, the love of his life, played by Jennifer Aniston, wants nothing to do with Bruce. And he's like, I'm gonna make you love me. And he can't do it. No matter, even with all the powers that God gave him, Bruce cannot make this woman love him. Here, watch this. Wait! Uh, how do you feel now? Have you completely lost your mind? What, are you drunk? Yeah, I'm drunk. Drunk with power. It doesn't work out so well for Bruce, does it, right there? Can't mess with a free will. And in a way, obviously that's not a scriptural illustration, but it does create kind of a concept for us to put some pictures on of like God's not gonna force you 
to love all the power in the world. It's not going to force you. You have free will. So grace is always offered. Salvation is offered, but it's not always accepted. But, but what does it look like for those who do receive it? The gift is available. Not everyone receives it, but some do. So what does it look like for those who do receive it? And that's kind of what I want to talk about for the rest of our time here today. Where I'm at in my study, I just want you to know that I see in the Bible, in the New Testament, four components related to a person's salvation. Now, even I know saying that, some of your eyebrows went, what? Four? Four components, I would say four components or four aspects that all relate to somebody's salvation. And if your eyebrows went up when I said that, here's what I encourage you to do. I want you to stay with me throughout the rest of the sermon, and I think you're gonna understand what I mean when I say four by the time that we get done. And I think you're gonna go, oh, okay, I understand now. In the New Testament, I see there are four components, aspects, if you will, that all come up in the conversation of the New Testament about salvation. These four components seem to harmonize beautifully in the New Testament, and together they wonderfully paint a picture of what it looks like for somebody who has found a brand new life in Jesus Christ. It paints for us a picture of someone who has put to death their old sinful ways and now is walking in the newness of faith. It paints a picture for us and describes what it's like when the old is gone and the new has come. If you're taking notes today, the very first component I want to talk about is this. It is faith. And that should not surprise anybody in here that's been a Christian for five minutes. Faith. Faith. I can tell you here today unequivocally unequivocally, that there is no salvation for anyone who doesn't have faith. Period. No faith, no salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 through 9 says this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Salvation comes from God nowhere else. God has extended his grace to us. Let's have some clarity on that. Salvation comes from God. He extended his grace to us. What is meant by that? It means that our sin deserves a punishment. But God had mercy on us instead. So he extended to us Grace, God's grace. So absolutely, salvation comes by God's grace. So the question becomes, how do we tap into his grace? Well, we tap into it through our faith in Jesus Christ. Let me explain this a little bit more. What is meant by faith? Well, this idea of faith in the Bible can really be described with two words, and all of these words can be used interchangeably. But faith is belief, and faith is trust. Okay, faith is belief and faith is trust. Well, what exactly are we supposed to believe? If faith is belief, what do we believe? Simply put, it's to believe in Jesus. Believing in everything that the Bible teaches us about Jesus is 100% true. Believing in all the eyewitness testimonies of those who walked with Jesus and they observed Jesus and they wrote about Jesus and they wrote about his miracles and they were eyewitnesses to everything that had happened and they talked about his compassion and his care. All the things that the gospel tells us about Jesus, believing it is all true. Hebrews chapter 11 verse six tells us this. Without faith... Without this faith, belief, and trust, without it, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. John chapter eight, verse 24, this is Jesus speaking. He said, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. 
you will indeed die in your sins. So faith is believing, believing that the gospel and everything about Jesus is true. Faith is also trusting, trusting in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ and how all of that impacts our life. John three sixteen and those verses around that passage speak very clearly about this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him so just not even believing existed, believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because we have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. It's believing in him. I just don't believe that he exists. I believe that everything about him is true and how his life impacts mine. There's this great example in Acts chapter 16 about a jailer who has this incredible moment with Paul and Silas. You go back and read about it sometime. But at the conclusion of all that, verse 30, this jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is a question that every single person alive today has to ask. It's better to ask the question on this side of eternity than on the next. What do I have to do to be saved? And this is how they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It is believing in the power of the cross and the resurrection. It's believing in the truth of Jesus shed blood on the cross and that it has the power to forgive sins. It's believing that Christ's resurrection conquered sin and death for all eternity and it opens heaven's doors to all those who would believe and tap into God's free gift of salvation. It's believing that. Both believing and trusting are very similar. They together make up the essence of what we call faith. And the Bible is clear. Without faith, there is no salvation. And that is why, my friends, that it is misguided to believe that being a good and kind person can get you into heaven. Because really being good and kind is really a flow or an outflow of your faith in the Lord. So being kind and good and all those aspects of just being a Christian, but they among themselves, just being kind and being good cannot get you to heaven because you can be kind and you can be good absent of faith. And faith is the ticket. Salvation comes to us by God's grace. We tap into that grace through our faith in Jesus Christ, believing in him and his power and his resurrection from the dead. Now, much more could be said and really needs to be said about it, but I'm gonna leave it right there. The first component in the conversation about uh, salvation in the Bible has to do with faith. Here's the second component if you're taking notes. It's this, repentance, repentance. The Bible paints this clear picture for us that when somebody is presented with the truth of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, they can do one of two things with that truth. They can either just dismiss it completely and reject it, and we see lots of examples of that in the Bible. We see lots of examples of that in our everyday life. People who are presented with the truth and they dismiss it. The other way to respond to that would be to believe it. You either dismiss it or you believe it. You believe it, do you have faith in Jesus? Those who choose to believe, which I would pray and hope that that is all of us, that when we have been presented with the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is, that turned into belief. I accept, I agree, I believe that. Those who do that, they are moved to this thing called repentance. I believe, and the natural result is what? I 
repent. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 13, verse three. But unless you repent, you too will perish. I know it's very straightforward and some of this stuff just needs to sit on our heart for a little bit and then sink in. But unless you repent, you too will perish. What is repentance from a biblical perspective? When the Bible speaks of repentance, what is it actually saying? You know, I, I don't want to take the time to dig into all the root languages and everything to come up with this, but let me just cut to the chase. Repentance means this, a change of mind. It's a turning from one attitude or one viewpoint to another. So in the context of Scripture, it's a change in mind, a change of attitude towards sin. It's a change in attitude towards your own sin. This is the heart of a repentance right here. Instead of loving sin, we hate it. That's repentance. The person who has come to believe, to have faith in Jesus, believe and trust, have come to believe that, needs to turn around and despise sin because our holy God despises sin. We hate sin because it is the very thing that sent Jesus, whom we believe and trust, it's what sent him to the cross. So repentance is the outflow of faith. I believe and now I change my mind about sin. I changed my mind about the way I used to be in love with sin and all of that behavior. I changed my mind about it and now I hate it because it's the very thing that sent my Savior, whom I love, to the cross. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads, uh, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Luke chapter five, verse 31, these are Jesus' words. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Second Peter 3, 9, we've already looked at this verse, but let's look at it again. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Repentance is to change your mind about sin. And as a Christian, it's having a whole new attitude towards sin. We're determined to rid our lives of sin. And a real change takes place in our heart. And that change leads to what we call life change. We are about the ministry and the mission of life change. I've changed my mind about sin. I now hate it because God hates it. And it's what put Jesus on the cross. And this is what is meant when Jesus said these words in Matthew 3, 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So I believe and I have trust, I have faith. I have changed my mind about sin. So now the outflow of my life is gonna be the Holy Spirit's reflection of my life and the things that I do is keeping in line with that decision to repent. I, regret, I, I, I reject it, my life represents something else. And Jesus said, produce fruit now. Keeping up with your repentance, it will show. If you truly have turned your heart against sin, it will show in your life. Acts 26 verse 20 says this. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. There's a sense of I reject sin, I've repented, and my life now shows and displays something else. My deeds reflect my heart's rejection of sin. 
I'm telling you, friends, as you study the Bible, you cannot talk about salvation without talking about both faith and repentance. Salvation in and of itself is salvation from sin. And we cannot be saved from our sins while we are still holding on to sins in our hearts. When we are confronted with the gospel, we've got to make a choice between salvation and sin. And if you choose salvation, there's got to be repentance. It's a complete change of mind, change of heart about sin. Right alongside of faith and repentance is another component in the discussion of salvation. And it's this, number three, confession of faith. Confession of faith. What in the world is confession of faith? I can tell you, those of you that come from a Catholic background, it has nothing to do with going into a quiet, dark room and talking to a priest. We are not talking about the same thing here. To confess in the biblical sense literally means to say the same things and to be in agreement. It's to acknowledge verbally, if you will, the truthfulness about something. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. This is another one of those verses that has to sit on your heart and then sink in. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Now this is a pretty straightforward statement by Jesus. According to Jesus, if you take this literally, that if you're unwilling to acknowledge me, affirm me, identify with me, no salvation for you. That's that's one that has to sink in for a little bit. Romans 10, nine says something very similar. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. Justified means declared righteous. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. 1 John 2, 23 says, no one who denies the son has the father. Whoever acknowledges the son has the father also. 1 John 4, 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. In the church world, we have this thing that we refer to as the good confession of faith. Have you heard of that before? Have you, is that phrase new to you, the good confession of faith? Paul references something in his letter to Timothy about a good confession of faith. 1 Timothy 6, 12, he's, he's writing to Paul or to Timothy, and he says, hey, Timothy, I want you to fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We don't know what this good confession is exactly. I mean, Paul did not provide the script. Hey, Timothy, remember when you said these words and you talked about this and you did that in front of all these people? He just says your good confession. In the context of the book of Timothy, in the context of the New Testament, we can deduce that this confession has something to do with Jesus Christ being the anointed one from God on which salvation rests. Peter made a similar kind of confession in Matthew 16. When he looked at Jesus and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, there's lots of confessions like this throughout the the New Testament we can read about made by Jesus' followers. They identified, they spoke publicly. This is Jesus, this is who he is, and I agree with him. 
When we baptize someone here at New Life, you will often hear us say something like this. If I'm baptizing somebody, it comes out like this. Now in front of all of these witnesses, would you repeat after me your good confession of faith? I believe, and they say, I believe, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son of the living God. And I choose this day, I choose this day, to make him my personal Lord and Savior. Then I'll say something like this, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, dying to your sins, being raised to walk in the newness of life. There's no script, but there's this concept that if we're gonna believe and trust and have faith and we're gonna turn our backs on sin, that there's some kind of confession. I'm making Jesus my leader and I want the whole world to know and if anybody ever asks me, I'll be happy to tell them. There's this idea of confession. Friends, I want you to know that God did not reach down out of heaven and snatch us from the very clutches of our enemy so that we could turn around and be ashamed and timid and bashful and afraid to confess before all people that we love Jesus. It's not why he did it. Faith, repentance, confession, they're all talked about in the conversation of salvation. There is one fourth component that I want to share with you today. The fourth component is this, if you're taking notes, baptism, baptism. Sadly, this conversation of baptism has turned into a point of division among Christians, and I think that probably breaks God's heart. It's very unfortunate. With the time that I have left here today, I won't be able to get it, give it the adequate attention that it deserves. Perhaps I'll come back and do a sermon just on baptism sometime in the future. But I want to share a few things about it because baptism is very much a part of the conversation about salvation. First of all, baptism was first modeled for us by Jesus. Jesus himself was baptized. And Jesus himself commanded the church to be baptizers, to baptize and to teach people. And perhaps some of Jesus' most famous words is the last thing he said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. We know this as the great commission text of the Bible. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, throughout the New Testament, time and time again, when a person responds to the truth of the gospel in faith, I believe we see them getting baptized. I'll give you an example, Acts chapter 18, verse eight. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. When we think about baptism, it beautifully illustrates Christ's death and resurrection. Baptism is what it does. It beautifully illustrates Christ's own death and resurrection. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, says, For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. This is what's first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So when somebody gets baptized and they're down in the water, this water, it symbolizes your very own grave, okay? Jesus died on the cross. They put him in a tomb. He died, put him in a tomb. Three days later, he raised to life. 
When you align yourself with the Lord, I believe, I reject sin. Jesus is my leader. I wanna unite with him in baptism. What you're doing is you're going down the water and as you are laid down underneath the water, it's like saying, I am going to my own grave. I am dying to my old sinful ways. And then you raise them up out of the water, signifying in a beautifully illustrated way, my new life and my new identity as a Christian. So you go down, you're dying to your old sinful ways. Some of you, we've had to hold down a little longer than others because there's a lot of dying that needs to happen. I'm stupid sometimes. I just, I say stupid things. And we come up out of the water, brand new person. Colossians 2.12 says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your own faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. I'll tell you, baptism beautifully illustrates my new life as a Christian. Romans chapter six, verse four says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, much more needs to be said about baptism, but I'm gonna leave it right there. I see in the New Testament, there's these four components, there's these four aspects, all revolving around the conversation of salvation. The, the, the repentance, conf, or faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. In the New Testament, at times they are taught, spoken of collectively, at other times they're spoken of independently. But you put them all together. You take the full counsel of God in the scriptures, together they harmonize wonderfully and they paint this beautiful picture of, of, of what it means to be saved. Now, I wanna let you guys know that as your pastor, I get asked very hard questions. Really hard questions. Questions like this. Joe, is it absolutely essential that I get baptized in order to be saved? <sighs> I get asked questions like, Joe, do I have to have all four? I mean, what if one of them isn't completely represented and does that mean I'm not, saved. <laughs> let, let me say this to you. Salvation comes from God and God alone. Not Joe Williams. If you put your, all your faith and hope and trust in me, you won't go to heaven. I don't have that power. I can't save you. Salvation comes from God. And God can do anything that God wants to do. And he can save anybody he wants to save, however he wants to save them. And it's not like somebody shows up figuratively at the pearly gates one day and God takes a look at him and goes, but I got a toughie here. I better call Joe and see what he thinks. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. God has never called me up on my phone and said, I got a tough one here. I got somebody really liked me, but no. It's just God can do whatever God wants to do. You know, Paul said to the church in Philippians 2, he said, you need to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Speaks to the seriousness 
of this topic. With fear and trembling. I think when we talk about salvation, there is some fear and trembling involved with this conversation. So continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So I guess I, I, I answer these questions that are very hard by just saying, it's between you and God, and you gotta come at it with fear and trembling? Because at the end of the day, we are all gonna stand before the Lord in the great throne room of God. I won't be standing there next to you. You're gonna stand on your own and you'll be accountable on your own. And I will share with you that the choices we make in this life, in the here and now, it's these choices, it's these determinations that determine if that moment where you stand before the Lord is the most glorious moment of your life or the most horrific, terror-filled moment of your life. Now, I can only speak for myself, and you can only speak for yourself, um, but I certainly don't mind telling you what I think, and here's what I think, that my study of the Scriptures leads me to this conclusion. I don't want to stand before the Lord one day without faith, repentance, confession, and baptism being active components in my walk with Jesus in the here and now. Let's pray. God, I thank you, Lord, for your teachings. Lord, I thank you for your grace and how it's huge. Lord, we acknowledge today there's not a one of us that deserves salvation. There's not a one of us that can earn it. There's not a thing we can do, be it good or kind, to work our way for it, to earn it. Lord, we accept the fact that we are saved not by what we do for you, but by what you have done for us through the shed blood of your son Jesus on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. It is by that, Lord, that you extended grace to us. So, Lord, we know clearly through Scripture that we tap into that free gift of salvation, your grace, through faith in the one and only Son, Jesus Christ. It is the only way. And so, Lord, we thank you for opening heaven's doors. Lord, I pray for our church family that as we study scriptures, perhaps you've highlighted some things in our lives. You've maybe motivated us. Lord, maybe you've pricked our heart. Maybe you've caused us, Lord, to think about some things that perhaps we haven't thought about in a long time. Maybe, just maybe. We don't live out the life of repentance like you want us to. A complete, full-on rejection of sin. Maybe, just maybe, our attitude towards sin has not really transitioned to a complete rejection. And we're maybe not doing everything that we know how to do to rid our lives of sin. Maybe you've woken us up to that today, Lord. Maybe we've been very timid and bashful. Maybe we've tried to live a secret Christian life. I'm saved, but I want everybody to know about it. That's not good either. Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit do the work your Spirit can do. And as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, God, would you work on us? Again, Father, we thank you for your mercy. It's undeserved. We thank you, Lord, for your 
forgiveness of old ways. Lord, we thank you for starts over and do's over, and we thank you for these things. And we thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. Help us to live it out fully. In Jesus' name, amen.